we started a series uh, three weeks ago. This is our fourth week on FAQs of the Christian faith. What are common questions? Sometimes they come in the form of objections. Sometimes they come in the form of just an honest, sincere question of how do I make sense of this? And so the one we're going to look at tonight is this, this idea of, of hell, which is, a, which is a, a difficult one to address. And him. You know, one of the things, being a minister, being a pastor, one, one question that I oftentimes get asked is, like, do, you, do you, you really believe, is there like real actual literal fire in hell? We've got a, a neighbor, uh, some neighbors, and, and they're Jehovah's Witnesses, and Jehovah's Witnesses don't, don't believe in a literal hell. And he says, he said, do you believe in, you know, in hell? And, Hellfire, you know, there's fire. And I said, no, I don't, you know, probably not. I don't think there's real fire. And he goes, oh, whew. I said, but I think it's much worse than that. <clears throat> um, understandably, when people talk and think about hell, it's a very difficult, it's a, it's a, it's a wretched reality. It's a, it's a horrible reality. No one, I, I hope no one enjoys talking about it. I'm sure there are some who do. But understandably, people have problems with it. Like I said, the Jehovah's Witnesses say, I can't, I can't wrap my mind around it. And so Jehovah's Witnesses would hold to something called annihilationism. The idea that the, those who are separated from God, who, who say no to God in eternity, God just annihilates them. Their, their souls aren't eternal, they would say. They just cease to exist. Um, very popular uh, Christian pastor named Rob Bell came out with a book a couple years ago called Love Wins. And he had this idea that he said, I, I, I just I can't quite, again, I'm not okay with it. So he, he holds to what's called universalism, this idea that everyone will ultimately make it to heaven, to new earth. Uh, they will all love God. That, that God's love will win everyone, everyone out. Um, and he's not the first to say this. There was an early church father named Oregon who, who held the exact same thing. He said, yes, if God's love is really going to win, it will win everyone. Now, Oregon went so far as to say that includes Satan and the demons because he was being consistent. You know, I don't think Bell quite goes that far, but Oregon, I think, was being more consistent. The church condemned Oregon early on, or that view is saying, no, that's heresy. That's, uh, there are, there's such a thing as free will, and people really do have the choice of whether or not I want God more than anything or whether I just want whatever I want more than anything. Even modern Westerners, if you talk to the average person out there who, who's not an absolute atheist, if they would say, oh, sure, I'm spiritual. And um, Christian Smith, a sociologist a number of years ago, identified this largest group in our culture as moralistic therapeutic deists. It's a mouthful, huh? We talked about that in here. Moralistic therapeutic deists. Deist is the idea there's a God, but he's pretty distant. Moralistic, he's just kind of concerned about us being nice. And therapeutic, he's sort of like a counselor in the sky. He just wants us to be happy, and he doesn't get involved unless we have problems. And he, and he said this really is the fastest-growing religion that the average person holds out there. And this person, too, would also hold that, well, yeah, it's compulsory heaven for everyone, except maybe, you know, Hitler and Stalin and Mao and Genghis Khan. Okay, there's a few. But otherwise, it's compulsory heaven for everyone. So this is what I want to talk about tonight. Let's, let's try to think through this biblically. Now, the ancient Greek philosopher Plato said, before you ever get involved in a conversation, define your terms. What are you talking about so that you're not kind of ships passing in the night? So let me, let me give you an initial definition of, of hell, and then we'll kind of fill this out as we go through the night. Um, here's kind of a, a, a working definition. It is a place, or you could say a condition, 
because I don't know place, I mean, we're not entirely sure about categories, a place or a condition of eternal, it's not ending, conscious, that means an awareness, torment, that means unhappiness, a, a condition or place of eternal conscious torment. Um, our Catholic brothers and sisters state the biblical doctrine well in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, uh, written in 1033, as this. Hell is the state of definite self-exclusion from communion with God and the blessed. Okay? It's the, the, the state of definite self-exclusion. That's a key point that we're going to pick up on here tonight. From communion with God and from those who are followers of God. Now, let me, let me make a kind of a note here before we go on as we talk about hell as we get into Scripture. Many people kind of erroneously make this assumption that, you know, the God of the Old Testament is just like hellfire and brimstone, and it's, it's, it's judgment, and it's harsh. And then you get to, you know, the God of the New Testament, and it's grace, and it's forgiveness, and, and, and it seems like such a contrast. In fact, there was a guy in the early church named Marcion who he saw a contrast there so much that he said, they're different gods. And he rejected anything of that Old Testament God. Anything that sounded Jewish, he ended up pulling anything that was Jewish out of the New Testament, which is almost all of it. And he said, yeah, the New Testament God is this sort of, he wouldn't use terms, moralistic therapeutic deism. You know, that's my God sort of thing. Here's the problem with that. You go to the Old Testament, the concept of life after death is very vague. Now, there's a concept of a substantial soul in it living on, and um, the, the closest thing we get to something really kind of nailed down is in Daniel chapter 12, in which he refers to the final state, um, not just being dead, but some sort of final state after that, where he writes in verse 2, Daniel 12, to multitudes who sleep in the dust. Everyone talk about those who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who will rise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. That's the most you find in the Old Testament. That's really clearly saying punishment reward. So it's very vague. Now, there's no real descriptions of hell in the Old Testament, but once you get to this guy named Jesus... Jesus actually says more about hell than any other character in the Bible combined. He talks more about it. He gives more vivid descriptions and pictures than anywhere else in all of Scripture, even after him. So Jesus, meek and mild, wise, talked a lot about hell. Not because it's more important than anything else. Heaven, new heavens, new earth, that's far more important. But he talked about it because it was important. It was a reality. So what is the objection to this? Okay, because we, you know, we kind of realize, okay, people object to this idea of the doctrine of hell. Um, on what basis is it unjust? That's a statement. It's not fair. It's unjust. And here's kind of how the argument goes. And again, there are lots of objections. I'll just kind of give you one that sort of generally gets at the big idea of what's the objection to hell. Um, and it kind of goes like this. Most objections begin with an assumption. The assumption is that hell kind of works like the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth punishment thing, right? We all know that. If you do this, you get that. Punishment equals the consequence, right? Or punishment equals the, the act, okay? And so, and so the objection kind of goes like this. No matter how much unhappiness someone brings into the world, okay, no matter how much evil they do, no matter how much sin, no matter unhappiness a person causes in his or her life, it will always be 
a finite amount, right? It's limited to a certain number of years, a certain number of offenses, a certain number of people that they impact. However, um, the Christian doctrine of hell is eternal. We just have an eternal conscious torment. Therefore, it is unjust. Therefore, God is unjust. Therefore, the Christian God doesn't exist. He's either an evil uh, you know, person who enjoys inflicting pain on someone, or he just doesn't exist at all. This is the idea. So the question for us becomes, as we look at Scripture, what then is the principle in terms of which hell is just that we can look at and say, that actually makes sense? It's horrifying, but it makes sense. There's not a, there's not a problem there. And that's what we're going to explore tonight. And I want to look at just, uh, I think the Bible gives some compelling answers and um, some explanation of hell. Turn to Luke chapter 16 if you have your Bibles. This is a, a, a fairly well-known parable that Jesus told. And uh, Luke 16, or turn your Bibles on if you have a smartphone or iPad. In Luke 16, 19, I'm going to start reading. Um. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen. Um, I'm just going to kind of stop as you go through this. Purple cloth in this day was very expensive. It was only the ultra-wealthy who had purple clothing. And and the verb tense that it uses there is the idea that he wore it every single day. It's like he had other clothes, but he intentionally wore purple every single day as sort of this almost a flaunting, a way of really showing his wealth. Only the wealthy could afford that. And it also says, um, and bought fine linens. This, this word for fine linens means a very high-quality Egyptian cotton, but it refers to his, and there's sort of a hint of humor here, it refers to his underwear. You know, it's saying, he didn't just wear nice clothes on the outside. If you're really interested, he had really nice underwear. Okay? So this guy just lived in the lavishness of life. Um, and who feasted, Suppulently every day. And at his gate, so this guy had his own gate. That means he had an estate and a gate in front of his estate. This is an extremely wealthy person. At his gate, a poor man named Lazarus, covered in sores, who longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell on the rich man, fell off the rich man's table. Even the dogs would come to lick his sores. And it says, the poor man died and was carried away to the angels to be at Abraham's bosom. Some of your translations will say Abraham's side, Abraham's bosom. This is the picture. Do you remember, remember the Last Supper, if you've seen even pictures of it? Who's the person who's always leaning against Christ? John, okay? That person, because you would recline at a table, usually kind of like a U-shaped couch, you would recline with your feet away from the table, and the person who was on your right would be basically leaning on your shoulder. Well, whoever was the master of the ceremony, whoever they picked to sit on their right side, to sit at their bosom, at their chest, their shoulder, this is a place of honor. It's like saying, you're my closest. You're the, you're the person of honor this evening. Okay? So Jesus is painting a picture. Lazarus is brought to where? He's brought to the place of honor at a banquet with Father Abraham. It says, the rich man also died and was buried. Now it says, in Hades... Uh, Hades isn't hell. Hades is just the dead. Everyone who's died is in Hades. Okay, that's like just everyone who's dead is in Hades. But then there's uh, you know paradise, and then there's hell inside that. Okay, but Hades, in their understanding, their worldview is that's just the place of the dead. So they're both there in Hades. In Hades, 
um, where he was being tormented, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus, again, at his side, place of honor, at his bosom. He called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Now, that's now the phrase, that's, that's what the beggar would have said his whole life, right? That's a beggar say, have mercy on me. And sent Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm in agony in these flames. But Abraham said, child. And it's interesting, he uses, there's a, there's a word huios, which just means son. And then in Greek there's a word technon, which means like my little precious child. And he uses that kind word. Technon, little child, remember that during your life you received your good and Lazarus, in like manner, evil things. But now he's comforted here. You're in agony. Besides all this, between you and us is a great chasm that has been fixed so that those who might want to pass from here to you cannot do so. And no one can cross from there to us. He said, then, Father, I beg you, send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, and he may, that he may warn them so that they may not also come into this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. That's the Old Testament. The Torah, the Pentateuch, and and the rest of the prophets. They have the Old Testament. They should listen to them. He said, no, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Now, again, implicit. There's an implicit blame here. Hint, hint. I didn't have enough information that he's saying. He um, He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Now, here's the big thing. Commentators have always looked and said, okay, so what's the big difference between these two? Uh, And again, we don't have time to do it tonight, but it's not wealth. It's It's not material possessions, and it's not physical health. That's a difference, but that's not what determined, does one go to Abraham's bosom to a place of honor, and and one goes into absolute agony, because the Bible is, the Bible is not against being healthy, and, and, and it's not against material possessions, though it warns against dangers of all things. So it's, it's clearly not that. What is the difference? Jesus tells about 40 parables, at least that we have recorded in the Gospels, a little over 40. Okay? Every single one of them, he never uses proper names for people. You know, the, the servant, the master, the father. The son, the older son, the younger son, the sower, the farmer, the reaper. He never uses proper names, except in one parable, this one right here. It's the only time that anyone in a parable has a proper name. And so the obvious question is, well, why doesn't the other character? Because there's two characters in the story. So you'd think if he's going to tell what the one guy's a proper name, why doesn't the other guy have a proper name? There's Lazarus, and the other guy's just called the rich man. He doesn't have a proper name. Um, so first I guess, well, why did the rich man go to hell? You know, insider trading, embezzlement, uh, Ponzi scam. No, we don't have any indication that he did any of those sorts of things. Well, think about this. Think about what the name Lazarus means. I, I think Jesus, he's careful in what he does. He's specific. The name Lazarus means God is my help. God is my foundation. God is my source. God is my place of meaning. God is my refuge. God is my rescue. That's that idea. Lazarus means God is my help. He's the one that my life is built on, regardless of health or material possessions or anything else. It's God that is the foundation that gives me buoyancy in life. And so what we see is what what sends someone to hell. It's not being poor. It's not being rich. 
Uh, it's not violence. It's not stealing. It's not any of these sorts of things. What, what sends a person to hell is to make anything but God your help. To make anything but God your source. Your place of ultimate strength. That, that's what it is. If you make anything but God your, your help, your point, your salvation, your God, your identity, that's all you are. What happens when that's taken away? Because see, at death, all those, everything we have, our roles, you know, are you just a mother? Are you just a businessman? Are you just an accountant? Are you just an artist? Are you just a musician? Because at death, all those things are gone. They're all taken away. So the question is, what identity is left? What have you built on? What is remaining? Uh, Soren Kierkegaard, who's a Danish philosopher, he wrote a book called Sickness Unto Death. And in it, he said, he, he was wrestling with what's the definition of sin? Kind of get it, like, what is it that really separates me from God? Like, what is sin? And he, he came to this conclusion that he said, this is, this is what I think sin is from Scripture, as I look at it. That sin is building your identity on anything else but God. Now, he's aware that kind of the, the common traditional religious view is sin is breaking God's law. And he goes, sure, it absolutely is. To break God's law is a sin. He said, but I wonder, is that really the essence of sin? Is there more? Because here's the problem. Pharisees. <laughs> Pharisees keep the law meticulously, right? They kept, they even, they did what was called fences where they, they came out even further. They said, I'm not even going to get close to breaking the law. If I'm supposed to do this three times a day, I'm going to do it seven times a day. So in case I forget, I never even get close to breaking the law. So, Kierkegaard says, okay, it can't be merely breaking a law because then you could still do that and have a rotten heart. And Jesus talked a lot about that. So that can't be it. And so, and so Kierkegaard talks about this idea that a person who, who kind of holds to the moral laws, um, tries to get their value by, by their moral performance, by their justice, by their ethics, that sort of thing. Um, all they're doing is building their identity on a good thing, morals and ethics, that's all good. But the problem is they take that good thing, whatever it is, whatever they're building life on, and they make it an ultimate thing. It becomes their God. It becomes their help in this sense. And they almost fall into a, a sort of like addictive relationship or addictive attachment to this thing. So Kierkegaard is being radically biblical, I would suggest. If you, if you want to kind of dive into this more, read, read Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6 talks about this idea of what is my identity on and understanding that as sin. Now, let's pause for a second because I, I kind of want to look at this idea of um, fire. Because what I would suggest is as, as we build, as we start to build our identity on something else, it's like a little fire starting to grow inside your heart of hearts, deepest place. Why does Jesus constantly, not always, most of the time, when he talks about hell... Why does he use this picture of fire? Because, you know, he also uses a picture of its utter darkness, darkest darkness, he says. Well, if you have fire, you have light, okay, right? So was it fire or is it darkness? Well, probably he's using imagery. When he talks about heaven, he uses imagery. He says, no, I have seen no ears, heard what God has in store for those who are, who are clinging to him. It says, you can't even imagine. I could just give you ideas. So it's, it's, it's likely that when he's talking about hell, when he's using these images... He's doing the same kind of thing. He's using images, but it doesn't mean the fact that they're not literal, it's less than. I think it's more than. 
No eye has seen, no ear has heard. But why, why fire here? The word hell, let me give you, um, this, this is the word in the Greek, Gehenna. Some of you may have heard, heard this word, Gehenna. Um, Gehenna is actually, it's in the Greek, but it's not a Greek word. It's a Hebrew word, but it's written in the Greek words. It would be like if I said, um, I lived in Korea for a while. I lived in Korea for a year, and uh, to say, anaranjado means hello. Okay, So if I spelled out anaranjado with English letters, that's kind of what this is. This is a Hebrew word. But it's, it's spelled out in Greek words. So unless you were a Jew living in this area, or I mean a Greek living in this area, you wouldn't even know what this word means. It's, it's something that's unique to this region. And it comes from this, there's, there's something called the Valley of Hinnom. I'll show you a little map here. Um, this, this is Jerusalem. This is the Temple Mount up here. And one thing that's kind of unique about this area, this is, this is David's city where he first built his son Solomon, expanded, built the, built the temple up here. Um, this, this area of Jerusalem, it's, it's surrounded by valleys. It's not actually the highest mountain, but what, what, what makes it so unique, because the Mount of Olives, which is over there, is actually higher in elevation. But what, what makes this area so unique, the Temple Mount, is it has valleys like this. And so you're protected on three sides from foreign armies that come. It's only the north that you have to be concerned about. That's why in the Old Testament, any time talked about judgments, judgments coming from the north, because that's where the enemies would attack. Well, this valley right here is called the Valley of Hinnom. Okay, um, and the Valley of Hinnom, there's there's sort of a long long story with this. If you go back in Israel's history, uh, the book of Second Kings, this is like 600 years before Jesus, in Jerusalem, um, there was a king, and this was a King Manasseh, and King Manasseh was the king of the southern kingdom of Jerusalem. This is after the kingdom split up, and um, Manasseh introduced the worship of a of a Canaanite god to the Israelites, called Molech. Um, and so, basically, Molech was the god of the underworld, the god of the death, the god of kind of Hades. And you could, you could appease Molech, you could kind of get on his good side by offering, the, offering him the blood of babies, of little infants. And so, King Manasseh introduced the practice of child sacrifice, Israelite little children, babies, to Molech. And what, what Manasseh did is he, he built a bunch of... Um, in this area here, he built a bunch of um, royally established altars where these sacrifices would go on. Um, well, the God of Israel ex- is, is extremely angered by this. He's absolutely incensed by it. And through the prophet Jeremiah, you can read it in Jeremiah 19, he talks about how Manasseh and the Israelites have, now listen to this language, this is where it starts. He says, you have lit the fires of Hinnom and consumed the innocent. You have lit the fires of Hinnom and you've consumed the innocent. And so, and so God's so angry that he brings judgment on his people, Israel, for this heinous act. And what's the form of this judgment? God allows the, the ancient uh, uh, army or empire of Babylon to come and attack Jerusalem, besiege it with you know, cannonballs and destroys the walls and, and that sort of thing. And then all the, all the Israelites who die, all the people, all the Israelite people, all the soldiers, their bodies, their corpses, are thrown into this valley of Hinnom as a recompense for what they had done to these babies. This horrifying image, it's horrible, it's burned into the minds of the Hebrew people. So this valley 
over t- by the time of Jesus, this valley has, had become a refuse dump. It's, it was the city dump. It's where the sewer from the city went out to. It's where animal carcasses were. It's where the poor who had nothing, their bodies were thrown there. Because of the smell, they would burn it oftentimes. So there was still this burning, this fire in the valley of Hinnom. Or in, in uh, Hebrew, it's Gai Hinnom. And so they translate it Gehenna. That's, that's where we get it. So what is God's judgment? God gave Israel over to its own evil is the picture here. That's what it is. is here's what I... Consequence of you walking away is I just let you go to your own to your own self-designed destruction We talked a couple weeks ago about this idea of common grace The idea that god is kind of holding back the world from becoming as rotten as it could be by his grace We have the image of god and all these sorts of things Uh, Romans chapter 1 talks about Releasing people certain people once they kind of pass a certain line where he just goes, okay I'm going to let you do what you want And that's its own consequence. The consequence is just getting what you have learned to habitually want. This is God's justice. He isn't going to allow evil to remain in his city, so he's going to remove it, which long before Israel ever got into the land, he warned them. He goes, hey, just so you know, if you do the stuff that the detestable people did before you got here, he said, I threw them out of the land. He used the language of vomiting. He said, I vomit them out of the land. If you do it, I'm going to vomit you out of the land. This is the exact same language that's used in the book of Revelation when it says, and God separates, he he casts them out of the city. It's picking up on this Hebrew idea of removing them from God's city. And so what we learn is the mission of Jesus, the mission of Jesus is the removal of hell out of the world, out of the earth. And the removal of hell out of us, the removal of the flame. So hell is this image of this defiant don't tell me what to do. I'm free. Oh, I'm not that bad. It's not that big of a deal. Um, <clears throat> remember the old Billy Joel song? This was like in the 80s. Uh, it was, We Didn't Start the Fire. You remember that? Do you not remember that? No one remembers it? Okay, some of you remember that. In the song, you know, he goes through from like, I think the 40s, you know, by decade, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, up into the 80s. And he talks about the Rosenbergs and the communist bloc and the Suez Crisis Canal and JFK and Korean War and burning bras and Watergates and age and heavy rock suicide. And the chorus of the song keeps coming up again and again. We didn't start the fire. It was always burning since the world was turning. According to Jesus, Billy Joel's wrong. <laughs> we have started the fire. This is, this is what he's saying about Israel. Who lit the fires? Israel did. Who lit those fires, those original fires? Israel lit the fires that consumed. God's whole point is that hell is birthed as a series of small, deep fires in our hearts. There is a fire burning inside each one of us. The Bible calls it sin. You know, calls it rebellion, calls it lots of different words. But it's this, it's this fire that's burning deep inside there. See, here's the point. The fires of hell are simply the the natural, organic outworkings of these small, tiny little fires that go unchecked, but they also go on for eternity. Um, have you ever seen the movie The Iron Giant? It's this it's this great kids animated movie. It's it's really really good. it's an older one. Uh, Iron Giant. I won't tell you the whole story, but there's this there's this line where the Iron Giant he becomes friends with this little boy and he sacrifices himself at the end for them and the you know the armies against him and all this stuff. And, but there's a line in there where the Iron Giant 
says, because he's, he, he's a machine, he's a rocket, and, he, and his little boy is saying, no, and, uh, and he says, souls don't die, souls can't die. They go on forever. If the Iron Giant is right, and Kierkegaard agrees with the Iron Giant, and fortunately Jesus agrees with the Iron Giant, if this is true, that souls go on forever, they are immortal, your very self is something that if you ground it in anything but God, what will, the, what will your soul look like in hundred years, thousand years, a million years, two billion years. What will your soul look like? Listen to C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity. He says, Christianity asserts that every individual human being is going to live forever. And this must be either true or false. Now, there are a good many things which would not be worth bothering about if I were only going to live 70 years which I'd better bother about very seriously if I'm going to live forever. Perhaps my bad temper or my jealousy are gradually getting worse, so gradually that the increase in 70 years will not even hardly be noticeable. But it might be absolute hell in a million years. In fact, if Christianity is true, hell is precisely the correct term for what it would be. Think about that. That's what it actually would be. I'm a grumbler. Lewis uses this example in another place in one of his books. He says, you might be a grumbler. You kind of grumble and you know, you know, complain. But there's still you there that can even sometimes you know, critique that. Ah, I wish I weren't such a grumbler. He said, if that doesn't get nipped in the bud, what happens on an eternal trek? Pretty soon, the individual's gone, you're just a grumble. He says, the person doesn't even hardly exist anymore. You're just a grumble itself. That's what the human destiny is. That's why it's the weight of our glory, it's so massive. It's so huge. There's a, uh, a psychologist, he passed away in 2005, who wrote a fabulous book. I, I put some uh, suggested readings in the, in the bulletin, I think, on the inside, right-hand page. And I think his is at the, is at the bottom. Yeah. Um, Dr. Gerald May, MD. He was a psychiatrist and kind of a spiritual counselor for many, many years. And he wrote this book. It's, just, it's, it's fabulous. It's called Grace. Um, I'm sorry, it's called Addiction and Grace. And Basically, his thesis, he starts out by saying, um, I want to look at addiction and kind of what it looks like. But he, he starts out by saying, do you realize that addiction and idolatry are just the exact same things? One's a theological term and one's a psychological term. But addiction and idolatry, the exact same dynamics are going on. Well, this helps us understand hell. This helps us understand our own hearts. Um, he, he, he says that all human beings have this inborn desire for God, like we're kind of hardwired for him, we're made for him, um, conscious of it or not. And this desire, it is our deepest longing. It's our most precious treasure. That's, and so that's why when God commands us, the first commandment is love God more than anything. Make him your center. Make him your help. Don't love anything higher, anything more, because it'll kill you. It'll absolutely destroy you. Um, but he goes on to say our, 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 our expectations of God or others, whatever, don't get met. He said this is how addiction forms. This is also how idolatry forms. For instance, God does not always come to us in the pleasant ways that we might expect. And so we, we repress that desire. And this happens in relationships too. If, if you've always wanted the love of, of, of a certain person and it gets met and you're hurt and you feel vulnerable, you kind of suppress that. You push it down or you repress it. Um, th- the problem is... He says, and then you move to something called displacement. This is where you, you, you try to keep this longing kind of on the peripherals of your consciousness. You try to just kind of ignore it. You try to keep it over there and, and not, not really be aware of it. He goes, the problem is you can't. 
It keeps creeping in in some way. And so eventually, this, you start attaching that desire that originally was to that to some person or some thing or some activity or whatever. And that's the addiction, he says. That's, that's where it locks on you because you've, you've attached your deepest love, your deepest longing, or your longing for friendship, or your longing for meaning, your longing for security, your longing for control. You attach it to something. Well, this will give me control. This will make me feel secure. And then, and then you become this sort of addict with these things. Um, he writes this, after we try to stifle desire, finally comes addiction that attaches desire, bonds, enslaves the energy of desire to certain specific behaviors, things, or people. And then these objects of attachment then become preoccupations, obsessions, and they come to rule our lives, Dr. May says. Dr. Gerald May's point is that the addictions find, or the addicted, find themselves in a self-imposed prison. Right? We know kind of how some of those addictions work. And he, he calls addiction, quote, the most powerful psychic enemy of humanity's desire for God. And he says, that's all, that's all idolatry is, is putting your desire for God on that thing, that relationship, that person, that achievement, whatever it might be. This is why C.S. Lewis continually speaks of hell as being locked from the inside. He said, hell is locked from the, from the inside. People in the middle of addictions know this well. They say things like, yeah, this isn't good, but I also can't imagine living without it. I can't imagine being in another place. Nobody understands. Well, it's not that bad anyway, and I can handle it. I mean, it's not, what, it's not what's said in the middle of addiction. That's hell, and that's hell. That's hell, and that's hell. If that's what hell is like, and I think it is, we have confirmation in this text about the nature of it. Um, commentators have, have noted for centuries, for years, about the rich man and Lazarus text that, that we're looking at tonight. Um, that uh, this man, the rich man who's, who's in hell, that he's so oblivious to reality. It's like he's not aware of what's, what's really going on. He's in denial, commentators will say, without even making a connection to addiction. He's in this state of denial. And then he starts blaming other people, which is also a sign of addiction. Lazarus is in heaven, right? He's the guest of honor, for goodness sakes, to, to Abraham himself. And the rich man in hell... Um, you would, he sees him, he notices him, you would think he'd go, would you forgive me? I'm so sorry. But what does he do? He starts, he, he starts treating him like a servant still. Abraham, would you send him down here to take care of me? Send him down here just to you know, give me a drink of water. He's still treating Lazarus, who is at this high position now, like he's a servant, like he's a slave, like he's still not great. He's so focused on himself, he still can't get out of himself. And notice that he doesn't ask to get out of hell, he just tries to get Lazarus in. And he strongly insinuates that God did not give him enough information. Because he says, go to my five brothers and give them the information. Hint, hint, I didn't have enough. Hint, hint, nobody understands me. I shouldn't even be here. And it's really not that bad. And I wouldn't even want to be up there with all those you know, super righteous people and that sort of thing. Just, just, I just send someone down here to give me a break. That's the nature of addiction. And apparently, that's, a, that's writ small in addiction in hell, that's going to be magnified. It's going to be some sort of almost moral insanity of saying, I'm miserable, I hate this, and I want truth, goodness, and beauty and all these things, but I don't want God. And God goes, but I am truth, goodness, and beauty. No, 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 I just want those things and not you. 
No, I, I, I am those things. No, 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 no. I just want the good stuff. You know, I want, I want fuel besides you. And he says, I'm the only fuel in the universe. Well, I want fuel and it's not you. That, that, that's why it's locked from the inside according to Scripture, I believe. So here's the summary. Hell is just a freely chosen identity based on something else besides God going on forever. Disintegration, disintegration, refusing to admit what it was. This parable tells us that the disintegrating work of sin begins long before hell happens. Hell is just the next natural step to saying, I want to build my identity on something else, anything else, pick besides God. And deep beneath the surface where where no one can see, God knows what's in the heart, and in eternity somehow that comes out. That sort of explodes onto the cosmic scene. But far from annihilate us, this same Jesus who talked more about hell than anyone else in the Bible all combined and put together, Jesus who's, who's getting in people's faces talking about this, warning them about this, these sort of serious elements, is the same Jesus who is marching toward Jerusalem to take all the consequences of sin onto himself. Far from annihilating us, Jesus would rather go to death himself. This is, this is the physician who wants to cure his patient by taking his sickness. That's what Jesus would rather do. And so that's why, you know, when we, we talk about communion, we're going to have communion here in just a couple minutes. That's why communion is such a radical symbol of the love and commitment of this Jesus. It's a recognition of the hell that is in our hearts, but his radical commitment to get the hell out of us and out of the world. And see, I would suggest that understanding hell, long from, far from being something that oh, it's, it's embarrassing or anything like it. No, it's real and it's horrible and it's tragic. It's the most tragic thing in all the universe. But that understanding the nature of hell will help you understand your human heart. It really will. It will help you understand. It will help you understand the hearts of other people as well. If I understand that all of us, every single one of us, are literally spiritual addicts, if I really get that, that's what hell seems to teach. And that apart from the, the interrupting, pervening grace of God, that I'm going to go my own way and it's going to be like the most destructive, self-destructive pattern that I could possibly have. Because see, I think a lot of Christians live their lives where they, they kind of see these little fires, you know, coming on the side of them. And they're like, <laughs> you know, if I can just kind of get rid of this on my own self you know moral improvement if i can be a better person if i can try harder if i can read my bible more if i can go to church if i can join a small group if i whatever that's that putting that down but if we understand the nature of what this hell fire is little fires inside of us and where that leads then we'll understand the solution that it's only by the absolute grace of god on the cross, through his death and resurrection, that he empowers us with his spirit. He says, I pour my spirit in you. Jesus talked about this picture oftentimes. He's such a pictorial person. Concrete says, streams of living water start flowing up from your belly. And in a, in a dry, parched desert land, that makes total sense, a lot more than it does to us. Streams of living water just start bubbling up inside your own stomach. Wow. Can you imagine that kind of organic life? But you'll never have it just by moral improvement, just by trying to fix, just by trying to 
to be better. One, one kind of last question before we go into this is, this oftentimes brings up kind of a separate issue, and I don't want to totally address it, but I want to just say one thing about it. Oftentimes we go, okay, I kind of get that. This makes sense. How's that? But, and then we kind of come up with like hypothetical people. But what about a person who's, and we put them in a hypothetical situation here, and they, you know, they don't hear, and they don't get a chance. And we come up with all these kind of hypotheticals. What about that person? And that's, you know, kind of, which is a, it's a very valid question. And I think there's solid Christian answers for it, and I can't fully answer it tonight. Let me just say one thing about that. Every time that someone did that to Jesus, in fact, a good example, after Jesus' resurrection, um, he's sitting on, on the beach, and he's with Peter. He's restored Peter because Peter denied him three times, and he's sitting there. And, and he, he, he gives some indications about how Peter's life is going to end, and it's not very good. It's kind of gruesome. He says, this is, this is what I'm asking you to walk through. And you know what Peter's first response is? It said that he went like this. He saw John. He goes, what about him? What about that guy? What about that guy? <laughs> and Jesus goes, what is it to you? If I want him to remain till I return, what is it to you? That's my business. And his point was just like what we say to our, our kids all the time. That, you know, what about him? I go, you worry about you. I'll worry about him. The God of the universe who is infinitely capable, infinitely powerful, infinitely knowledgeable. He knows everything that's going to happen. He knows every possibility of things that are going to happen. And he knows the actualities of what are going to happen. That God says, I got it. Well, yeah, but what about, he goes, just worry about you. Any fires inside you? Where's your heart? Is, are you really, is your help me? Is that what it's built on? Or is it built on this? Is it built on your status? Is it built on your reputation? Is it built on getting this relationship? Is it built on how you're perceived? Is it built on your education? What, what is your status? Um, let, me, let me read. Well, for the sake of time, I'm just going to kind of paraphrase it here. Jesus told a lot of parables. We read one tonight. One that he told again and again, kind of in different settings, was a parable of a banquet. And this, this Jesus... Jesus is the most inclusive exclusivist I know, meaning this. When Jesus talked about who he wants, who the Father wants to be there, new heavens, new earth, eternity, he oftentimes used, he used the picture of a banquet, and he said, so a master is going to throw this huge, huge banquet, huge party, and he sends out all these invites to people. And when it's time, he sends his servants to go tell them, hey, it's it, this is time to come. And when the servants go out there, they talk to him, and he says, most of them have these things that are more important you know, well, no, I've got to take care of this, or I'm going to do that. Or, well, no, this is, you know, my help is here, my help is there. And he says, and so the servant comes back and he tells me, he goes, they don't want to, and he goes, well, go out and get like people who, you know, poor people, go find homeless people, bring them in. And he goes, I already did that. I thought you'd want me to do this, I already did it. And he goes, go find people who can't even walk here. They're, you know, they're disabled, they're like, you know, they, to, they can't even carry themselves in. He said, because there's still seats and it's killing me, it's not full. That's the God who we have to understand when he talks about hell, it's, it's, not, it's not the picture of him casting people into hell and saying, oh, save me. He says, no, you had your chance. You know, hell for you sort of thing. God says even in the Old Testament, he says, I do not delight in the destruction of the wicked. God wants the good. He wants the wicked. He wants, he wants everyone there. That's his call. He's the most inclusive, exclusivist that there is in the world. And because God is love, the only thing that he will not do is force himself on our wills. And so as Lewis says, hell is a tragic monument to human freedom, 
to dignity, to human freedom that God will not force himself on. But he always says the banquet's coming. I'll ask our ushers to come forward. Um, Last Supper, the, the, the last time that Jesus did this with his disciples, he did this every year with his disciples, uh, is called Passover. But the last time he celebrated, right before he walked straight out to the cross, he gathered them around, and he had, they had bread and meat and all these sorts of things and cups and wine, and they would take multiple drinks. They'd take a drink of wine and pass it around the table, and someone else take it. And when it got to him the last time, it's the last drink, he, didn't, he put it up to his mouth, but he didn't drink. He set it down. And he said, I will not drink this cup until I'm at the banquet table with my father, with you. Meaning, in the end, when we're there, when it's finally consummated, when evil's finally wiped out, I'll do this. And I will finally drink of the cup. But not until then. And he said, every time you do this, but I want you to keep doing it. And every time you do, you proclaim what I'm going to do, my death in the past. But you also look forward to, man, this massive banquet when all all is set right. All evils are wiped away. So take these elements. If you're a follower of Jesus, take these elements. If you're just here exploring the whole faith thing, I'm so glad you're here. You can just let the elements pass by you, though. Um, hold on to the elements, though, and then we'll come back together and we'll, we'll take them together, okay?